Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. They are called counts. They are actually formal accusations provided for by the Constitution and carrying the weight of history. America's 45th president, Donald John Trump, was impeached on two counts. Speaker Nancy Pelosi wielded the gavel on the House floor Wednesday night. On this vote, the yeas are 229, the nays are 198, present is one, Article 2 is adopted. It was the most votes to impeach an American president ever. It was also a vote divided sharply along party lines. And the path to a Senate trial to see whether the president will be convicted and removed remains unclear, though the Republican majority has his back. Trump appeared unfazed in the Oval Office yesterday. I don't feel like I'm being impeached because uh, it's a hoax. It's a setup. It's a horrible thing they did. Trump will carry this label for the ages, and yet it's not clear how it will affect him in his bid for re-election just next year. The president's allies in Washington say it will energize his supporters. Across the country in Los Angeles, Democrats agreed on the need to beat Trump and then seized the moment to attack one another. He's received contributions from 44 billionaires. Pete, on the other hand, is trailing, Pete. You only got 39. I did not come here to... Listen to this argument. Senator Warren, you would be the oldest president ever inaugurated. I'd like you to weigh in as well. Uh, I'd also be the youngest woman ever inaugurated. Join us. What do you make of this historic moment? How do you want the Senate to proceed? Join us anytime at onpointradio.org or on the Twitters and the Facebook at On Point Radio. With us from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Juana Summers. She's political reporter for NPR. Juana, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Also with us from Washington, D.C., Katie Rogers. She's White House correspondent for The New York Times. Katie, great to have you on board. Hi there. Thank you. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point's own news analyst, Jack Beatty, joins us. Hello, Jack. Hello, David, Juana, and Katie. Well, you saw this week uh, something that we haven't seen a ton of in recent months. Protests sprouted to advocate impeachment in more than 600 sites across the country Tuesday night. Here's what it sounded like at a sampling of demonstrations from Seattle, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Denver, and the Twin Cities. When Trump publicly asked Russia to interfere in our elections, it was time to impeach. This is our country for us, by us, and if we don't speak out, then shame on us. Those particular protesters got their wishes at a weekly press briefing on Thursday in the Capitol. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi addressed reporters with what she called a spring in her step after the impeachment vote wrapped up. She outlined what she said would be next in the process. Just to get this off the table right away, we impeached the president immediately. Everybody was on to the next thing. The next thing for us will be when we see uh, the process that is set forth in the Senate, uh, then we'll know the number of managers that we may have to go forward and who that we, who we would choose. 
So uh, let's start with you. Uh, Juana Summers, uh, uh, you covered Congress. You're now covering politics, but you've covered Congress before. Uh, before we step forward and look at what's ahead in terms of the uh, connective tissue getting uh, us from the House to the Senate, uh, how big a moment is this for Nancy Pelosi? How important a step was this by House Democrats as we look at it? Well, this entire thing has been a huge moment for Nancy Pelosi. If you think back to the beginning of her speakership, this is someone who a number of lawmakers said during their campaigns they weren't going to support a speaker. And now she is in this position, which to, to all, you know, she started out saying, you know, she was not interested in going down this road. She was interested in following the facts where they might lead. And ultimately, the facts led her here at this historic vote. So it's a huge moment for her and a historic moment for the Congress. Donald Trump, the president, becoming the third president only to be impeached. So it's certainly a huge moment on Capitol Hill and one with little historic precedent as to what comes next. And of course, I can't help but mention politics. This all takes place in an election year, which raises the stakes even higher. And we'll certainly be talking about that as this hour unfolds. Uh, Katie Rogers, you cover the White House. I want to play for you a clip right. of the occupant of the White House. President Trump held a campaign rally in Battle Creek, Michigan, Wednesday night. His two-hour remarks uh, included one riff after another, uh, included scattershot attacks on many of his critics and political foes and riffs on all kinds of other subjects, as well as an attack on the very impeachment vote that was playing out in the nation's capital even as he spoke. With today's illegal, unconstitutional and partisan impeachment – The do-nothing Democrats, and they are do-nothing. All they want to do is focus on this. What they could be doing are declaring their deep hatred and disdain for the American voter. This lawless partisan impeachment is a political suicide march for the Democrat Party. Katie Rogers, uh, this is – there's a lot to unpack in, in, in those few sentences there from the president. To start with – not unconstitutional, uh, you know, whatever – you can certainly call it partisan, uh, the impeachment process with perhaps some grounding, uh, but not illegal and not unconstitutional. What is the president doing there? Well, I thought it was really interesting when you opened by saying he appeared unfazed in the Oval because that is the sound of the opposite of unfazed, I would I would think, for the uh -huh. president. Uh -huh. um, this is – that's probably one of the worst days of his political career, if not his uh, life, and he has been responding privately and publicly in kind – um, so that is that a lot of the, those words that he used the other night were actually contained in that long letter he wrote to Speaker Pelosi the other day. Um, mm -hmm. He's basically been searching for a pressure release valve to just call this unconstitutional and illegal and unfair when, in fact, the White House has actually stonewalled Congress at every turn um, throughout this process. Um, so I think what we're seeing is just a president who um, is embarrassed and frustrated to be the third to be impeached in American history. And um, he's uh, – I, I would definitely not call him unfazed. Um, it seemed as though in that, that meeting he was your, – your colleagues actually reported today that he was laboring under the belief or at least that some of his aides were trying to convince him mm -hmm. that Nancy Pelosi just didn't have the votes despite what their congressional liaison was trying to warn them of. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are advisors close to the president who will tell him what he wants to hear. And I think there are other advisors who toil away to try to gently correct that. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of reporting on the White House. It's my job. And I think that 
they like to present um, an image of unity and say this has been a really galvanizing moment for everybody. But you really still have, and maybe even more so right now, you have um, an increased number of loyalists to the president who are willing to sort of tell him things like that. At that rally in Battle Creek Wednesday, uh, the president referred to what he said was a kindness he extended after the death of Michigan Democratic Congressman John Dingell, who had served in Congress for decades. And then he implied Dingell had gone to hell. Trump spoke about the call he'd received from Representative Debbie Dingell, who's John Dingell's window and his successor as member of Congress, uh, after Dingell's funeral. She calls me up. It's the nicest thing that's ever happened. Thank you so much. John would be so thrilled. He's looking down. He'd be so thrilled. Thank you so much, sir. I said, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Maybe he's looking up. I don't know. Jack Beatty, how'd that play in Michigan? How'd that play in Congress? Well, even Republicans winced over that crude and really uh, appalling uh, statement. You know, Stephanie Grisham, the White House uh, press secretary, said, if that's the, that job still exists, said uh, uh, the, the president is a counterpuncher. Here he's counterpunching against the dead. Uh, it, it, it's just uh, a comment unworthy of any human being, much less the president. Um, Jack, I also want to ask you, you and I talk uh, before the show as we often do, and you said in a sense, you know, this was a, a trap that the president stood poised to wriggle out of. And then you said something that was interesting. You said that he really in a sense self-impeached. What do you mean by that? Well, that was a phrase that Nancy Pelosi used. She actually said he would self-impeach. Consider the record. In July, he was home free. Sixty percent of Democrats in the House voted against impeachment on the base on the Mueller report. Then on, I think, the 24th of July, Mueller testified a big fizzle. What does the, the president is home free. He was charged with colluding with a foreign power to win an election. Nope. Uh, free of that. He was charged with possibly obstruction of justice. That wasn't going to be raised against the Demo- by the Democrats. Next day, what does he do? He talks to the president of a foreign power about interfering in the next election. And then that, that's Article 1, the abuse of power. And then Article Two, uh, the the uh, you know stonewalling of Congress. Uh, he he creates that article by simply saying, "I don't care what Nixon did. Nixon may have sent people over to testify. Nobody's going to testify." Essentially, inviting that article because mm-hmm. if the Congress had accepted that, it would be gelt. The con- congressional power would be gelded uh, in perpetuity. And you know, it doesn't just stop there. The ar- Article One warns that he remains a threat to national security and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office. And how is his conduct now? Is it, is it threatening uh, anything like that? Well, you have Rudy Giuliani still just a week ago in Ukraine prospecting for more dirt on, on Biden. And, and uh, Jake Tapper put it perfectly. He said, this Rudy's mission to Ukraine is ta- would be tantamount to Bill Clinton at the midst of the impeachment, his impeachment, going out for a night on the town with Monica Lewinsky. You know, it's notable, Jack, that uh, that the nation appears to be slightly in favor of impeachment, even even or even slightly perhaps uh, supporting uh, the president's removal in some polls. Uh, and yet 
sharply split. And yet there was a, a, an editorial posted last night by Christianity Today, an evangelical publication, a centrist one, which writes, the facts in this instance are unambiguous. The president of the United States attempted to use his political power to coerce a foreign leader to harass and discredit one of the president's political opponents. That is not only a violation of the Constitution, more importantly, is profoundly immoral. Uh, and then writes later on that uh, the president's Twitter feed alone is a near-perfect example of a human being who's morally lost and confused. Interesting shakeout as impeachment actually occurs as to what uh, happens. Uh, we're going to be talking n- not only about this, but about how it moves forward, what happens in the Senate, what the political implications are. We want you to join our conversation. Stick around. How is your community reacting to the impeachment of Donald John Trump, 45th president of the United States? I'm David Fulkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, there are other things that are going to affect your performance. And maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while. And Thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflick. We're taking a look this week at as a historic moment and also as part of what's happening right now. It's just the third time an American president has been impeached. You can join our conversation. How will impeachment influence your thinking in the 2020 presidential election, if at all? 
Follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. We've got a Cracker Jack panel this hour. We're speaking with Juana Summers. She's a political reporter for NPR. Katie Rogers, White House correspondent for The New York Times, and our own Jack Beatty, On Point's news analyst. First, I want to start, as promised, with a couple of calls. Uh, we've got a call from a New Bedford, Massachusetts. Paul, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in. Uh, <clears throat> few comments. Trump is a, a nasty piece of work from the student, the mentorship of Roy Cohn. We have to keep drumming that home to everybody constantly. Be in front of the message like he does. So, and my question is, how do we strong arm the, the Senate? Have some teeth in having them te- get the guys who are guilty in this to testify. Giuliani, Mulvaney, uh, Pompeo. These guys covered this up. They need to be exposed for who they are. And like, massively. So I'll leave it at that. Okay, Paul. Thanks for that. Let me throw that to someone who used to cover Congress quite intensely and still keeps a strong eye on it for us here at NPR. Want to tell us a little bit about that. Uh, 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 Senate Minority Leader, that is this top Senate Democrat, uh, Chuck Schumer, has said, look, we really need some some witnesses here. Uh, What are we hearing from Mitch McConnell? So, so far, we have not heard anything to suggest that Mitch McConnell will acquiesce to that. But I think that to the root of the caller's question, this is what Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, is holding out for. House lawmakers have left town for a two-week holiday recess without taking the votes to import appoint impeachment managers, which would be the next step to start this process in the Senate. Nancy Pelosi has said publicly that she will not send those charges over and she will not name the lawmakers who would prosecute the case against President Trump unless she's certain of a fair process. I think the hope there is that Senator McConnell, the majority leader, would commit will end up committing to Democratic demands, including the ability to call witnesses during a trial, because the president, you know, is very eager to present his defense and clear his name. So by holding on to these articles, I think that that's kind of the leverage she's hoping to use in order to get the witnesses the Democrats say they want to see in that Senate trial. Uh, one, I just want to play for you and for listeners uh, a clip of what that reasoning sounds like, I guess. Uh, uh, House Majority Whip James Clyburn, South Carolina, he's the number three Democrat in the House, uh, was interviewed on CNN's News New Day yesterday and was asked by anchor John Berman how he'd proceed with conveying the House impeachment counts to the Senate for trial. Are you willing yes. to hold the articles indefinitely if Mitch McConnell doesn't concede the points that you're asking him to? Are you suggesting it's possible you will never transmit the articles of impeachment? If it were me, yes, that's what I'm saying. I have no idea uh, what the speaker will do. Uh, But if you have a preordained outcome that's negative uh, to your actions, why walk into it? Uh, one, there was uh, uh, Noah Feldman's distinguished uh, uh, constitutional law professor at Harvard University was called by the Democrats in front of the House Judiciary Committee to sort of set out what was appropriate constitutionally for impeachment. He argues he thinks that if the House doesn't convey those counts to the Senate, that it's not actually that impeachment has not formally somehow uh, occurred. It's sort of a, a looking glass moment. It's hard to know exactly how to pinpoint it, but that is his his argument under the Constitution. How much leverage do Democrats have, and what what happens if they don't send it over? I mean, it would seem as though they would be not taking seriously what they had done. Yeah, and I think that's really the political gamble here that Speaker Pelosi and Democrats face. Speaker Pelosi has said that impeachment is a solemn, somber act. It is something she does not take lightly and came very serious to. So if, say, she were to hang on to these charges for negotiating leverage or, as Congressman Clyburn suggested, perhaps never deliver them at all, she risks appearing to politicize the matter. And that's something that could have ramifications not just for her and her speakership and the impeachment trial – 
But for a lot of these moderate um, congressmen and women who are in districts that President Trump won, who are going to be up for re-election in November. So there is a lot on the line here. It's certainly a risky gamble. I want to play you what uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell sounds like during Thursday morning's Senate session. He simply attacked the House Democrats' vote on impeachment. The articles aren't just unproven. They're also constitutionally incoherent. Incoherent. Frankly, if either of these articles is blessed by the Senate, we could easily see the impeachment of every future president of either party. Katie Rogers, we've heard that line from a number of uh, Republican lawmakers in the House arguing against impeachment, saying, well, if this happens, it's mm-hmm. going to make it the new normal. Uh, you know, it, part of me says, you know, they're warning about in some ways what they are arguing is lowering the bar uh, only mm-hmm. t- two decades after President Clinton was impeached. And part of it sounds a little bit like that old National Lampoon magazine, you know, buy, buy this magazine or I'll shoot this dog. You know, it sounds like a, well, n- a not so implied threat. Like president. A lot of it sounds like exactly what the president's been saying for months, which is like this should never happen to another president again. Like this has been hammered into uh, Republican messaging and talking points from the top down, you know. Um, well, it's, it's a step and, a little bit farther than saying simply, hey, you know, we're worried about degrading the office. It's saying, hey, this is going to happen to every future president of either party. Yeah. Uh, and obviously we're the people who hold the reins. So we're the people who can make sure that happens. Well, and I think embedded in in a talking point like that is fundamentally um, stoking fear and anxiety um, amongst your supporters that um, the government and the institutions that form this government are not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just being enforced by um, elected officials. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to go back to Juana's really good points about about the gamble uh, Nancy Pelosi is taking, and uh-huh. uh, McConnell's response um, really hurt. The risk in in what she is doing is um, treating Trump like the wild card he can be. Um, he has talked about wanting a long trial, um, bringing everything out to prove his vindication. That the precise gamble she's making is that he'll get impatient enough to actually uh, agree to some Democratic demands. It's less about what Pelosi and McConnell are willing to do and and more about how this president who's watching and wondering what she's doing, um, it's she's gambling that he's just going to get tired of it. Is she gambling on his irrationality ultimately? I mean, I think that's why it's so risky because she <laughs> is she knows that he wants a long trial. She knows that he wants a full bodied vindication of everything. And she's betting that he's going to get impatient. Jack, have we heard anything, you know, it, also in that Mitch McConnell uh, quote, uh, uh, he, he he said that the articles aren't just unproven. They're also con- constitutionally incoherent. Now, the first uh, count is abuse of power and that is a subjective thing. The second thing is obstruction of justice – excuse me, obstruction of Congress and it cited the president's uh, – Basically, not invoking executive privilege, but nonetheless blocking the testimony of a bunch of senior administration officials that the House had called. Um, what is? Have we seen a, a legal argument that makes the case that somehow this isn't uh, obstruction of, of Congress that that makes a certain kind of sense? I mean, uh, I've heard Republican uh, bloviators on TV, you know, talking heads saying presidents can resist subpoenas from Congress. This happens all the time and so on. Uh, But usually that's with a claim of executive privilege. And if a person is subpoenaed, they go to Congress. And when a question arises that is privileged, the 
the the uh, the the, 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 the administration official invokes executive privilege. The president simply said, as he said to as one of his uh, lawyers said, he just claimed absolute immunity. There is no such thing. Kings have that, not presidents. And uh, the, the essentially. It, it, it is it's such a dramatic remove from what even Richard Nixon did, who his chief – we remember Haldeman and Ehrlichman testifying, John Dean testifying, his counsel, uh, on and on. He turned over documents. He didn't in the end, of course, turn over the, the tapes, but that's what got him uh, – that's what got him out of office, not doing that. And, and of course, Bill Clinton did the same thing uh, – with 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 this president, he simply says this is a political stunt. It's a partisan witch hunt, and of course, the media echoes this when they say impeachment is a political process. That doesn't mean, or oh, the founders didn't think it meant partisan. Mm-hmm. Hamilton says, yeah, in a peculiar degree, the crimes that stand for impeachment should be denominated political in that they are crimes against society. In other words, the political to which Hamilton refers is a bigger thing and a graver thing than mere crime uh, and certainly a bigger and graver thing than partisan politics. And a question of judgment. I want to take a call now from Stanton, Virginia. David, thank you for standing by. Thank you for joining us. Share your thoughts on all this. Yes, thank you all for your uh, excellent program. My uh, observation and question is this. This whole impeachment process has uh, uncovered uh, incredible weakness in the process, whereby uh, it is uh, unbelievably partisan in every respect, especially now as we look at uh, the the, uh, supposed trial in the Senate. Is it time for, after all this is said and done, to have a commission or some kind of body to go back and review this whole process and come up with a constitutional amendment that would take the partisanship out of future uh, impeachment processes like this, ensure a fair trial, ensure that uh, no political party could unduly influence this. The Founding Fathers came up with a simple statement of impeachment, believing that future leaders would uh, put uh, country above party, and that has been disabused in this situation. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, David, thank you for that. Let me throw that. Juana Summers, is there a way in which uh, we can think about an impeachment and take a partisanship out of it? That is, Jack has made what I think is an elegant and important distinction. But, you know, politics and partisanship overlap, right? But they're not identical. Political judgments can be judgments that are are subjective and that, you know, take – uh, take measurement as opposed to uh, you know strict legal definitions, right? Is is there a way in which partisanship uh, can be extracted from this at all? I, I'm not sure. I see it. I used to cover Congress. What about you? That's a great question. I used to cover Congress, and I'm not sh- I'm not sure how you do that because I think it raises the question of fair to whom and whom, right? I think that if you were to ask. President Trump what a fair trial looks like and ask Speaker Pelosi what a fair trial looks like, the answer is never going to be the same. The tricky thing here, I think, is that there are so few precedents for what we are seeing unfold right now. We've said it multiple times. This is a historic moment. President Trump is only the third president to be impeached. So a lot of the process that we're seeing here is kind of uncharted territory. So I think the listener raises a really good question, but it's not. I'm not sure it's one that I have an answer for and that there's even a great template to look back to. 
It's interesting, though, because when I covered the impeachment uh, process in 99. I spent a lot of time in those corridors, right? And I was there in the Senate trial as well. And Daschle, Tom Daschle was the Senate minority leader for the Democrats. Uh, Trent Lott was the Senate majority leader for the Republicans of Mississippi. Both of them were shrewd and tough partisans, right? They were tough and they were on their party. They were able to figure out an accommodation. Now, maybe it was because they knew that Clinton wasn't going to get the numbers to be removed from office and maybe because the public wasn't along for the ride with the Republicans on this. But nonetheless, they figured out a way to do it. They had three witnesses. They uh, did not testify in the well of the Senate. Monica Lewinsky, I believe, uh, gave testimony by video and it was played and senators could you know, watch the testimony. I mean they figured out a process uh, ultimately that both sides agreed with. It just seems very hard to see that happen in Mitch McConnell's Senate and in today's Washington. It absolutely does. Um, one of the things that struck me anecdotally from being on the campaign trail as we've talked to folks about how they feel about impeachment and being in the halls of the Capitol is just how many raw nerves there are about all of this on all si- all, all parts of the political spectrum. It is difficult for me to imagine an an agreement that would come together in such a way that you would see a trial like the one that that you covered play out. You're asking to change American culture. You're asking, I mean, American political culture, not really the impeachment process. Katie, you're basically saying, look, dude, this is today's America. So America's shifted uh, even more, uh, become even more divided and partisan than it was. And this, you feel that Washington is a reflection of not a cause of the kinds of division we're seeing to some regard. Well, I, don't, I, mean, I, don't want to, I don't want to speak for you, but I want to make sure I understand. I mean, I, mean, I think American politics have become tribalized um, more than before. And I can't help but think that um, governments around the world who would like to see the American democratic process undermined. Um, um, I, I hate to think this, but I, I assume that this is the sort of outcome that governments like that would like. Jack, I want to play a clip from you in his closing statement on Wednesday during during the debate over this. House Minority Leader, that is to say the leader of the Republicans in the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy of California, accused Democrats of using impeachment to drive the 2020 presidential election their way. I understand you dislike the president, his beliefs, the way he governs, and even the people who voted for him. How do I know this? Because you say so day in and day out. In 2016, they even dismissed his supporters. Remember calling us deplorables? Now they are trying to disqualify our voice before the 2020 election. Check, Beatty. Uh- it strikes me that this is part of the, the 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 message of the moment. That is, if you vote against Trump, you are voting against us in quotes. That is, those who support him, those who believe in Republican uh, positions and values. Um, how uh, how valid, how justified is this sense of aggrievement about uh, what's being done here? Well, statistics say it's justified on the economic count. Consider this. Uh, Over the last decade, GDP growth in Democratic districts has been 63 percent, Republican districts 36 percent. 
Over the last decade, median household income has jumped 17 percent in Democratic districts, fallen 3 percent in Republican districts. At the share of jobs in digital and the professions in Democratic districts, 71 percent. The share of these future-facing jobs in Republican districts, 28 percent. You can see the difference, really, in Jim Jordan, the short-sleeved Furioso from Urbana, Ohio, His dis- he talks about, you know, the Democrats, uh, he, he quoted uh, one of the FBI agents who had their romance on, on uh, an email saying go- he had gone into a Walmart and smell them, meaning, meaning, meaning Trump voters. I mean, this is raw stuff. His district, the fourth, fourth district of Ohio, uh, median income, 55 percent. Adam Schiff's district in California, California 28, 65 percent. Jerry Nadler's district, New York 10, 93,000 uh, so dollars tell you, uh, income. It tells me that the Republicans are the party of, in a certain st- stretch, the have-nots, the left-behinds, the aggrieved. It's clear they're aggrieved culturally, probably racially, also economically. We're discussing the week's top news stories. Coming up, we'll switch gears to talk a bit about last night's Democratic presidential debate in Los Angeles and the question of what's ahead in 2020. Who made a compelling case on the debate stage? How have your allegiances shifted? We'd love your thoughts. I'm David Fulkenflick, and this is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick. We're going behind the headlines with our Week in the News Roundtable. You can join our conversation. What stood out to you from last night's presidential debate? Follow us on the Twitters. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. We're speaking with Juana Summers. She's political reporter for NPR. Katie Rogers, White House correspondent for The New York Times. And Jack Beatty, On Point's own news analyst. want to take a couple of uh, quick calls here. Uh, to folks who are still thinking, I think, about the, the historic news this week of the impeachment of President Donald Trump. Uh, Edith, thank you for listening today. She's calling from Canton, Connecticut. Uh, what are your thoughts today, Edith? Hi. Um, I believe in party loyalty to a point. I think it has gone far beyond that point. Um, the Senate majority Republicans have already made up their mind without hearing the proper testimony that should be heard for the people mainly to make up their minds when they go to the polls. For the few Republican uh, delegates who um, had the nerve to speak up out and against what the president has said over the months, I believe they deserve a medal 
of some kind. <laughs> so until the subject becomes nonpartisan and the laws that apply are used properly, I just don't see where this is going other than the headlines that the president was impeached uh, should stay in minds for a long time. Well, thank you for that, Edith. I want to take also a quick call now from the Menominee Reservation in Wisconsin. Basil is calling in. Thank you for listening. Basil, share your thoughts today. Yeah, hi, and thanks for taking my call. Um, mm-hmm. I, You're talking to somebody here who's watched and listened from gavel to gavel uh, from this whole process from when it all starts, um, mm-hmm. you know, to make up my own mind. And one of your callers, uh, a couple callers ago, had said, how can we take the partisanship out of, you know, what has completely gone crazy partisan to the point where nobody's crossing sides. Well, you got a Democrat who crossed sides and now is a Republican. But how do we take that out there? Well, there's a no law, but there is something that they're saying is a rule or something the DOG just goes by where they cannot bring charges against any sitting president. Mm-hmm. Now, if this, if if this, if we got some untouchable, some bipartisan people, some good stand-up people you know, to, to get into a committee and just have that committee be like an oversight committee, but not part of Congress, not political. And we had these people to be able to look over Congress, senators, whatever, whoever. And, you know, if there's a crime, if there's some smoke, well, they go see if there's some fire. If there's no fire, then they put it out and they report they put it out. But if there's fire, then they go after that fire. They charge the sitting president and our president right now would be sitting right next to his man, um, his first attorney over there, who was doing time for lying to Congress. All right, Basil. Thank you for that suggestion, a, a call for a kind of commission or extra, uh, extra uh, outside the executive committee's uh, check, I guess, uh, to, uh, uh, to the powers uh, of the presidency there. We are ch- uh, following a couple other news stories this week. Uh, as the Wall Street Journal and others report, the British Parliament voted overwhelmingly to back uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. That's a major step to the departure uh, of the UK uh, from the EU by January 31st. And how could he miss this? Thursday night was the Miss America pageant. The winner was Miss Virginia, Camille Schreier. She's a doctoral student in pharmacy, and for her talent, she performed an on-stage science experiment. I got to love that. Uh, Katie Rogers, I want to turn – sort of use uh, uh, this moment to to both acknowledge impeachment, yes, but use that to turn toward towards next year. Uh, mm-hmm. President Trump held this rally in Battle Creek, Michigan. It ha- although he made no reference to this, it happens to be the congressional district of Justin Amash, a, a sort of libertarian-minded Republican who essentially felt himself forced out of the party as he increasingly became convinced that what the president had done might well prove to be impeachable. And he did vote for the articles uh, of impeachment against the president. But this week also, New Jersey Representative Jeff Van Drew, a Democrat who won election in 2018, who declared he'd switch parties this week to Republican after deciding he would oppose both articles of impeachment against President Trump. He made the announcement of his party switch beside the president in the Oval Office yesterday. I believe that this is just a better fit for me. This is who I am. It's who I always was, but there was more tolerance of moderate Democrats, of blue dog Democrats, of conservative Democrats, and I think that's going away. Two more things I want to say. One, 
you have my undying support. Thank you. Thank you very much. And always. And by the way, the same way. Thank you. I'm endorsing him. <laughs> undying support, uh, a presidential endorsement uh, for Jeff Van Drew. Uh, how much is this going to be, as, as Republicans, the president, assert a liability uh, for Democrats? And how much uh, – conversely, one of the things you don't hear about, how much is it possible that Republicans, say, running for Senate reelection or, or, or other lawmakers may be held to account for their decision to, to oppose the impeachment of the president? Well, I mean, I guess I can just I'll, I'll, I can speak to the the counter assault that the White House and the Republican Party is launching against Democratic uh, uh, candidates and lawmakers. And Van Drew is definitely a part of that larger operation to sort of paint uh, the Democratic Party as radical, liberal, corrupt and, um, you know, uh, in, in able to get the work uh, of the American people done. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the White House and uh, specifically the two impeachment advisors hired to defend the president through this process, um, you know, they say they're feeling bullish about the ability to bring more Republicans in line and on their side. But if you talk to Republican and Democratic pollsters, and I have right now, um, this is a lot of, of smoke and mirrors on both sides, I think. The numbers are relatively static polling-wise. Like, minds have not been changed through this process because Americans tend to feel it uh, that it is totally polarized and not worth their time to engage with. Um, I think going forward as the Democratic nominee is identified and that discussion begins happening, then they'll... Uh, begin moving. The numbers might begin moving uh, substantially in either direction. The Senate trial, of course. Um, but right now, it's a lot of messaging and not a lot of movement. Um, last night's presidential debate took place at Loyal Marymount University uh, on the w west side of Los Angeles. Uh, in it, uh, you didn't hear a whole lot of candidates talking much about impeachment last night. And in fact, former Vice President Joe Biden made the case for bipartisanship during the debate. I refuse to accept the notion, as some on this stage do, that we can never, never get to a place where we have cooperation again. If that's the case, we're dead as a country. We need to be able to reach consensus. And if anyone has reason to be angry with the Republicans and not want to cooperate, it's me, the way they've attacked me and my son and my family. I have no, no, no love. But the fact is, we have to, we have to be able to get things done. Juana Summers, uh, you heard there a call for bipartisanship, and yet Democrats started to take aim uh, significantly with each other. Uh, during the debate, tensions between South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts surfaced strongly during the debate. Uh, Warren took aim at Buttigieg uh, for his fundraising tactics. Billionaires in wine caves should not pick the next president of the United States. Mr. Mayor, your okay. response. You know, okay. according to Forbes magazine, I am the, literally the only person on this stage who's not a millionaire or a billionaire. So if this is important, this is the problem with issuing purity tests you cannot yourself pass. Juana, you cover uh, politics in the 2020 race. What did we see play out last night? Yeah, well, first I want to clarify for our listeners who might not know why we're talking about wine caves on a debate stage sure. that a lot of the candidates piled on South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg for host holding 
was being hosted for a fundraiser in a wine cave where $900 bottles of wine were served. It was hosted by a billionaire former ambassador. So that's kind of the root of what they're talking about there. But we really saw a break open as Buttigieg has risen in the polls. He has increasingly become the target of jabs from his rivals. He and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren have been in this long-running debate over transparency and openness, with each, with Warren putting a lot of pressure on him to open up his fundraisers, which he is now doing to a press pool to disclose his bundlers, something that he has now done. He also took a lot of hits from um, Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, who talked about his lack of experience comparatively and how in the past debates she felt, and I'm paraphrasing here, that he belittled the experience of the other candidates on the stage, him being a mayor standing behind, beside so, these folks, a former vice president, several sitting senators and what have you. So one, let me play a clip for our listeners so they can experience that as well. Senator Amy Klobuchar took aim at, at Buttigieg by pointing to those comments from the last debate. He criticized the fellow candidate's years of experience in Washington as something detrimental. Here's what Senator Klobuchar had to say. So while you can dismiss committee hearings, I think this experience works. And I have not denigrated your experience as a local official. I have been one. I just think you should respect our experience when you look at how you evaluate someone who can get things done. Thank you, Senator. And I got to say, Klobuchar used the word mayor against Buttigieg like a crowbar, you know, Mm. hitting him repeatedly with that word. After trading barbs back and forth, Buttigieg fired back. Senator, I, I know that, that if you just go by vote totals, maybe what goes on in my city seems small to you. If you want to talk about the capacity to win, try putting together a coalition to bring you back to office with 80 percent of the vote as a gay dude in Mike Pence's Indiana. How did the gay dude in Mike Pence's Indiana do with that, uh, that comeback, Juana? Well, you know, I think that he, they were hoping that it would land in Klobuchar, of course, pointing out that Buttigieg lost a state treasurer's race in 2010 by more than 20 points, which is the only time he ran in a statewide election. I think that a lot of the Democrats on the stage have been pointing out his relative inexperience compared to, they would argue, their experience. But there's no question that he is someone who, over the last few months, has been rising in the polls in these early states, and they're trying to figure out kind of what to do with that, because he's also somebody who is a newer, fresh face in this party who's going to be around if he does not become the Democratic nominee and later the president for years to come. Let's take a call now from Salem, Massachusetts. Jenna, thanks for listening. Uh, Who struck you last night as particularly impressive? Hi. I just cannot get over the fact that Amy Klobuchar is not taking off. I feel like demographically, policy-wise, she just fits the country. And I feel like She's being overlooked. I feel like last night, especially her debate performance, she was the only one out there who looked like she could actually hit back. I'm an independent, and I voted for actually Gary Johnson last time and Mm -hmm. Mitt Romney before that, and I'm really only considering her or Pete Buttigieg. And last night, I thought she looked on fire, and I think she could actually win. And if one of those two don't get uh, nominated, uh, what do you do? Uh, That's what I'm trying to figure out. I, I actually have two young daughters, and I cannot bring myself to vote for Trump. I have a lot of friends in my same situation who lied and said they didn't vote for him last time, and I know that they did, and I can see that happening again this time because economically they're doing great and they have to look to their families, and I feel like they will not vote for Elizabeth Warren, they will not vote for Bernie, and Joe Biden just looks weak. I just feel like he he can't win. 
Thanks for that uh, thought, Jenna. Uh, Jack Beattie, a number of uh, folks last night, uh, including people not particularly aligned with him, said Joe Biden actually had a pretty good night last night uh, and that Bernie Sanders seemed to hold his own as well. How did how did you see the performances play on stage? I thought it was one of uh, Joe Biden's better performances. Uh, the pundits on the uh, MSNBC and CNN, they gave it they gave the debate to him and to Amy Klobuchar. The trouble for uh, Senator Klobuchar is that her vote, she's competing for his votes. So he did well. She did well. It's, it's not like she, in other words, he, he may have, their relative position, at least in terms of the debate, didn't change. And maybe that won't uh, be, maybe it will or won't be reflected in the electorate. She's got to do well in Iowa to, to, to survive. And it's, it's a brutal uh, calculus now, because uh, if you don't make that, uh, if she doesn't make that, if Elizabeth Warren doesn't do well in in New Hampshire, uh, they're they're really done for. You know, Katie Rogers, I was struck by that uh, clip we played, played the portion of it at the top of the hour from uh, Elizabeth Warren when being asked about being the oldest president inaugurated mm-hmm. should she win, saying she'd be the youngest woman uh, mm-hmm. uh, to take office too. And uh, you know, it was a very strong. How long do you think moment. she's been waiting to say that? May, she may have been, had that in her back pocket for some time. You know, I the, sense she might have. Katie, the Democratic National Committee are, are going to increase the qualification standards for its next debate uh, next month. So they're going to have to receive at least 5% support in four qualifying polls or some more in two early polls, making it likely that we'll see fewer than the seven we saw on stage. Last night's debate, presidential candidate Andrew Yang was asked about being the only candidate of color on stage. And he said his proposals will help diversify the playing field. The average... Net worth of a black household is only 10% that of a white household. For Latinos, it's 12%. If you're a black woman, you're 320% more likely to die from complications in childbirth. These are the numbers that define race in our country. And the question is, why am I the lone candidate of color on this stage? Fewer than 5% of Americans donate to political campaigns. You know what you need to donate to political campaigns? Disposable income. Katie Rogers, it strikes me the Democrats are, are trying to figure out a way to win a, a huge field. And at the same time, by playing by these early states, some of which are, are heavily white, they're mm-hmm. essentially uh, making it much harder for candidates of color to compete and break through. How tenable is this for Democrats? I'm, I mean, I, I'm not <laughs> – that's not really something I can speak to. Okay. I mean, um, I, think, I actually Lana? wrote about that. Yeah, I actually wrote about this this week about the debate that's broken open over whether Iowa and New Hampshire are too white to go first in the primary process. And I don't think it's tenable at all. And the reason you see that is you actually had, led by Cory Booker, all of the leading candidates signed a letter to the DNC asking that they not raise the thresholds like they just did, but actually to lower them so that this is a more diverse debate. I think so far, either four or five of the candidates have already qualified for the next debate, including Amy Klobuchar. But yet again, Democrats are running the risk of having an all-white debate stage in January. The final award given uh, Juana Summers, political reporter for NPR. Thanks, Juana, so much for joining us this hour. Thank you. We've also been lucky enough to receive the insight of Katie Rogers. She's White House correspondent for The New York Times. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. And thanks to our On Point News analyst, Jack Beattie. Have a great weekend, Jack. Thank you, David. You can continue the conversation, get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org, and you can follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. Our executive producer is Karen Schiffman. Me, I'm David Folkenflik. Thanks for listening. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. 
Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the Balance Scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts, and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.